We're in chapter uh, 9 of the book of Nehemiah. We are approaching the end of our study in about eight, nine months. <clears throat> but no, in, in about three or four sessions, because the end, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it kind of quickly, as you'll see. Uh, I, I was this morning working on the notes for the Psalms. We're going to do a series of Psalms. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, be dealing with that when we're done with this. But I want to remind you of what is going on here in chapter 9 into chapter 10. Um, what Nehemiah is doing, what Ezra and Nehemiah are doing here as the, both the political and spiritual leaders of the exiles who are now back in Jerusalem, is following the formula of an ancient Near Eastern Covenant Treaty. Now, that sounds a little bizarre to you, but that's really important because what they're doing is they're organizing for the exiles a format for them to renew their covenant with God. Uh, they have been in exile, which was a result of the sin of the nation, uh, sin primarily of, of idolatry and so on. Now they're back in the land. The temple is rebuilt. The sacrifices have been reinstituted. The high priest is again functioning. And a wall has been built around the city, and the uh, city is now secure. And so Nehemiah, as we learned in just the previous chapter, is now the governor of this little section of the larger uh, Persian province. And Ezra is the spiritual leader of the nation. They had led them in chapter 8 in one of the more, I think, personally, one of the more amazing revivals in the scriptures. And this is the consequence of that. And we had studied that around the framework of the intellectually, they engaged and thought about the word of God. There was an emotional response to that. There's weeping and mourning and tears. And then there's the, the result of, a, of an obedient, a level of obedience to the Lord. Now, this is the next step of that. Now, again, Ezra and Nehemiah are leading them in this, along with the Levitical priests, in renewing the covenant. And we had studied the preamble that was part one of this covenant arrangement. Part two is an historical prologue, an historical overview, and we're right in the middle of that. That goes through uh, about uh, verse, uh, in, uh, I forgot the exact verse, almost the end of the verse 37. But what I draw your attention to as we're studying this, and this is your assignment, when we're all done with this chapter, uh, chapter 9, and I'm trying to really stress this, so I'm doing the work for you, all you have to do is take note of it. I want you to list all of the character traits of God that are cited here. And then after each character trait, I'd like you to write just a little simple, simple definition of what that means. Okay? Yes. Nobody's listening to me. But anyway, just abstractly pretend like I'm really not going to ask you to do that. But it, for your own personal devotion, own personal study, that would not, that maybe would be a good thing to do. Because to me, that's the value of this. What these people are doing, these exiles are doing, is they're reviewing historically the faithfulness of God to them. That despite their sin, despite their idolatry, despite their rebellion, God remained faithful to them even when they were not faithful to him. And uh, perhaps if you want a major thesis of this historical overview, it is that Yahweh Elohim is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He makes covenant. You'll see that actually is actually a statement. He makes covenant, he keeps that. And the covenant to which they are referring, for the most part, is the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional, unilateral covenant 
that God instituted with Abraham, Father Abraham as they call him, and he will fulfill that covenant promise. So we left off last time right in the middle, so I'm just going to start there again in the middle of verse 17, but I'm going to pick up there. This is, this is the um, next section in their quick review of history. They are they during this historic. They've been freed from Egypt, the bondage to Egypt. They were there there for three, 430 years, the wilderness wanderings, and they received the law. Now we're in the middle of that, and they and the, the they write this. This is part of the covenant. This would have been written down. They refused to obey. were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but but they stiffened their neck. And appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. It's referring to some things that went on in Numbers 14. And then right in the middle of verse 17, you have this strong adversative. But, I hope all of your translations have that. Right in the middle of verse 17. But, you are a God. In contrast to their stubbornness, stiffening their neck. Appointing a leader to return. I mean, they, somebody wanted to go back to Egypt of all places. I mean, they just came out of slavery. They want to go back to that? But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Five character traits right there. We've already covered a number of them in the previous paragraphs. We're going to cover more coming up. But let's just take a moment and review each one of these. I mean, I mean, man, when you and I read this, we're kind of used to this kind of language, but I don't want you to. I want you to look at this in a fresh, new way. The, the, this covenantal language, because they're renewing the covenant. This has been a part of the document they're going to sign. They, they are saying, here's what we were, our fathers, our forefathers. This is what they were, rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked. Even the uh, ridiculous desire to go back to Egypt. But you, you are a God ready to forgive. Is that true in the New Testament? Is that true for you? Yes. Ready to forgive. Now, I, I can't write on the board because the board isn't available today. So just pretend that I'm writing on the board, Okay or the paper, or whatever. Um, the Bible speaks of two types of forgiveness. There's judicial forgiveness, which is accomplished at the cross. When God, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God judicially forgives us of all sins. We are acquitted of our sin, we're declared righteous. The second form of forgiveness, or type of forgiveness, is, we'll call it relational forgiveness, it's the forgiveness that goes with just the relationship and walk with God. Will we sin? Yes. Will we disappoint God in our sin? Yes. But he's always ready to forgive. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9. And so there's that, that you just see that, 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 that throughout the Bible is that continual, constant demonstration by God of his willingness to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences to sin, consequences of things we do, but God restores that relationship. 
He judicially forgives us. That's part of our identity. That's part of being a new creature in Christ. That's being part of being justified and so on. But that relationship with him is maintained by his spirit of forgiveness. As we acknowledge and admit and agree with him about our sin, he forgives. Uh, Bill Bright used to talk about, uh, and I love that you've used this a lot with discipleship groups, this, um, this way of, of thinking about um, his spirit of forgiveness as we walk with the Lord. He called it spiritual breathing, where we exhale in confession and inhale God's love and forgiveness. That's not judicial. That's not talking about the judicial forgiveness at the cross. That's talking about our relationship with the Lord. And I use that with guys throughout when I was in higher education and in, in other groups with men, because to me that is one of the most important things. He used to always say, keep your account short with God. And that's just you're agreeing with God about the things that you do that you know displease him, that where you're being disobedient or whatever the nature of it is. And so when, the, when, the, when they write this, God, you, but in, in contrast to my, our fathers and forefathers, you are always ready to forgive. Now, that was a great place for an amen, but you missed it. So, you know, that's what my pastor always said. Yeah. Um, I, had a, I had a teacher, a Sunday school teacher, who said God cannot forgive me for my sin. I'd call him and ask him how he was doing. How important is that, Jim? Can, in, Did you stop going to that class, I hope? Well, I was... I'm kidding you, but I mean, if somebody said to me, that to me, and I challenged I didn't get the answer, I'd say, well, I really appreciate your ministry, but... I don't think I can come to your class anymore. That's yeah. that's a horrible thing to say to somebody. So go ahead with your thought. Well, anyhow, I I would have I was quite a ways from him, but I distance wise, but I would have gone to him and spent time with him. But how important is that for our growth, Jim? Because you say he's ready to forgive. Is it possible we don't forgive ourselves like this example? And that cannot that can arrest our growth in the Lord if he if we feel he's that way. Yeah, of course. I mean, can you kind of I mean, how important is that based on what you've seen over your life and, and growth? Well, in my own personal life as well as in the lives of my children and the lives of, of men that I've worked with over the years, um, if you have the sense whatever the nature of your sin and whatever you've done, if you have the sense that God is incapable of forgiving you, then the guilt that you feel for whatever that you did will so incapacitate you. It will be an enormous burden that you, you, you and I've, I've had guys say this to me, I don't think God loves me as much as he used to, which is just an absolutely horrible thing for someone to say it's thoroughly unbiblical and in my judgment that is a very effective tool of satan to defeat you and to make to make you almost incapacitated in your spiritual life um, there's no biblical basis for that whatsoever and i don't mean to offend you but that whoever said that to you that is a thoroughly unbiblical thing to say to someone because that is not true. There is nothing in the Bible that can in any way justify a statement like that. Because our God is a forgiving God, a gracious God. Now, again, remember, there are consequences to some of the things we do. 
we're not talking about those consequences. David was forgiven of his sin with Bathsheba and what he did with Uriah, her husband, but there were consequences, and David had to live with that the rest of his life. But he was forgiven by his God. And read Psalm 51, read Psalm 32, you see that. He experienced the blessings of forgiveness from God, that relational forgiveness from God, as well as the judicial forgiveness. And that is very, 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 very central. If, If we have the sense that God doesn't forgive us, then we have an enormous guilt we're bearing, plus we really believe, and in some way, our relationship with God now is in jeopardy. And we're not going to grow. I mean, we, it, it, there's just so much that impacts that. So I think it's probably purposeful, but it's certainly practically important that this is the very first thing they list here. Because the children of Israel, you know, almost any time you're talking about them in their history, the things that they did were were very offensive to God, very directly disobeying what he had said, but he always, always, always forgave them. All right? I was doing a little preaching there. I shouldn't have maybe done that, but I that really, I feel very, very, very strongly about that. So we not also apply that in our own lives for those issues where he, Yeah, absolutely. And you, you used a very important word there that can also be a consequence of this. The bitterness. The bitterness in your heart, really, whatever it is and to whomever you're, you're giving that, focusing that bitterness, that's like a cancer. I mean, that just affects everything that, that you do in that sense. Our, our church has started, it's not original with us, it's in a lot of different churches, but we have a, a regular Sunday morning group, both men and women. We they do not meet together, but men and women. It's called Fresh Start. And it is focusing exclusively on forgiveness. And we become convinced over the years in the, my ministry and Matt's ministry that that is one of the major barriers in the, in the growth of a Christian, that inability and in some cases unwillingness to forgive. And you, you because Paul says, uh, and actually it's in the Psalms too, but anyway, we are to, we are to forgive as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. So what's the standard of our forgiveness? God's forgiveness. And my, oh my, you, you, you can't have any better model of that than, than that, the forgiveness of God. I mean, this, and just think practically of that. What if God insisted on perfect performance before he forgave? You know what I mean? Okay, here, here's the list. Perfect performance on every item. Not just one, every item. Or I won't forgive you. Sometimes as parents, we can communicate to our children. Yeah, that's the same part. I have a daughter. I just cannot get this point. Mm. Mm. Well, God needs to work on her heart, and he will. Well, we talk about that a lot. Yeah, so that's... Far. Yeah, that, it is important. I, I really am convinced that that is one of the 
one of the more important issues in our walk with the Lord, that ability and capacity and desire and willingness to forgive. I really, I mean, I, I've mentioned this. I really, really struggled with that, with uh, what happened to the school I used to lead as a result of some of the things my successor did. I, I really, really, really struggled with the capacity to forgive him. I mean, he didn't ask for it. He could have cared less. He didn't ask for it. But I, that was just in my heart. I had that. It was bitter. I, I carried some bitterness. And I, uh, I really, I had a number of folks praying with me, including my wife and my kids, to just help me to get over that, to be able to get beyond that. And that is, that is really hard. But in all of you, you all, I'm just using an illustration in my own life, but you all have issues like that. And so the, the model is God, ready to forgive. I mean, it's not he's, he's putting conditions on it, ready to forgive. And again, that's not the judicial forgiveness that results from our putting our faith in Christ. It's that relational forgiveness that is a part of our walk with him. Sick. Secondly, okay, I mean, can I go on? Secondly, is they go together and they probably correctly, they're translated correctly, and there's a little, uh, you know, coordinated conjunction there. Gracious and merciful, they go together. Um, the Hebrew word for grace is, is a little different. It's kind of a hard word in many ways, but gracious and merciful. Let's just take those two words. What's the difference? Because they're like compliments. They're like uh, two sides of the same coin. Gracious, merciful. They're not synonyms. They're not interchangeable words, but they're very close and they're, they're connected. What's grace? What's mercy? I think grace is God acting out of his concern and love for us. His compassion is for those who identify with us in terms of our weaknesses. If he's gracious toward you, what what's the evidence of that? What what are the what are the pieces very specifically uh, as pieces of evidence of God being gracious to you? Anybody? I mean, I'm, I'm asking. And this is not just Jim. It's anybody. We often define grace simply as unmerited favor. He just shows us unmerited favor. Sure. And I mean, did he choose Abraham because of something Abraham had done? Here's the 17 things you did, Abraham. You're a good guy. Now I'm going to choose you to share this covenant with. That's not how the Bible presents it. It doesn't say anything about his character. It says God chose him. Here, Abraham, this is what I'm asking you to do. Leave Mesopotamia and go to the land I'm going to show you. So unmerited favor. Um, listen, listen to me. What? Like you're not listening to me. But <laughs> The Bible speaks of three types of grace. Common grace, saving grace, sustaining grace. Common grace is what, and Jesus talks about this, 
is the grace that shows the unmerited favor God shows to everybody. Jesus talks about and he says when it rains, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's God's grace. He owes that to nobody. He does not owe rain to anybody. And Jesus also says the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does not owe us that. But he chooses to send us rain and the sun, which both are so necessary for the food that we eat. It's good for our bodies. We need the sun for vitamins. I mean, all that stuff that you can talk about medically. That's common grace. Saving grace is for by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 into 9. It's God's unmerited favor shown to us through Jesus Christ. Does he owe that to us? No. He does not owe us salvation. But he chooses to offer us that. And sustaining grace, you come to faith in Christ, then it's that, sustain, that, that grace sustains you. Does he owe that to you? No. But he chooses. I think I've told you this story. But let me, that was impressed upon me when I was a young man. I, I was uh, just been ordained, and this is back in the very early 80s, I still in Pennsylvania at my church, and it was time, this was the first time I ever did it, it was time for me to lead in communion. This is a big church. And way back then, they didn't have those plastic cups. These were glass cups. And I mean, just imagine, you know, you've seen these trays, just imagine about 15 of those, and they're all glass. They're going to be heavy. And so the elders are lined up, and so I'm standing there, and I'm, we, one group of the pastors going this side of the church, one going this side. I'm standing right next to me was a, a minister of worship. And I'm standing, I must have been visibly anxiety-ridden <laughs> because he put his arm around. He said, Jim, are you a little concerned about leading communion this morning? I said, Jerry, I am absolutely coming on good. I mean, what if I drop this? Can't you imagine? Ekman drops the communion. And there's just... We didn't use wine, so it's grape juice all over the place. That's what I'm envisioning. I know that's ungodly. It's not evidence not trusting in the Lord. It's evidencing my 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 young, untested uh, role. And I just absolutely terrified. So he put his arm around me. He just what he said. This is all he said to me. Well, Jim, I suppose God's grace is sufficient for that too. It's a very powerful statement. When Paul was praying to the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh, remember what God said? No, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. Now that's not saving grace. That's not common grace. That's the sustaining grace of God. He owes us nothing, but he chooses to give us everything. That's grace. And so here in the Old Testament, as they're renewing the covenant with God, they stress that, oh my goodness, if there is anyone in the Bible that should understand the unmerited favor of God, it's Israel. Because so many times they defied him. So many times they, did, they went into idolatry, or in, in the words of Jeremiah, whoring after other gods. But God still extended his grace to them. And even when he says in Jeremiah 24, I'm going to send you into exile for 70 years, then what? Then I will bring you back. That's grace. Did they deserve that? Absolutely not. Did they earn that? Absolutely not. 
But that's the unconditional, unilateral covenant God made of grace with Abraham. And so mercy, the other side of the coin, is what? Well, that's an that's an that's a dimension of mercy. That is not receiving punishment. Yeah, not not receiving what you deserve. So Israel, here the context: the children of Israel. If there's anything they deserve, was to be cut off from God. I'm done with you guys. If that's what you're going to do, I'm done. I'm going to go and start somebody else. God didn't do that. And you and I deserve eternal judgment. He offers us, as Woody just said, heaven. That's mercy, not getting what you deserve. Now listen, in Psalm 51, after David has, he had sinned with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, it's a year later, and Nathan has confronted him. But telling him a story of a, of a very wealthy man who stole the ewe of a very poor shepherd. And David said, that man's got to die. Who is it? Remember what Nathan said? You're the man. You stole another man's wife. And the text tells us absolutely David was crushed by that. He finally came to terms. He covered it up for a year, tried to pretend and, and the very the, the sense of that is captured in, in verse 1 of, chapter, of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God. What if David had prayed, be just with me, O God? Your hope, my hope, in our relationship with God is based on his grace and mercy because Jesus took the justice of God. God's justice was meted out on Jesus. Again, there was a great place for an amen, but nobody. So you have these two sides of that same coin. The amazing, unbelievable, you can hardly put it into words that summarize how God deals with people, his grace and his mercy. And that's what they're saying as they're reviewing his history. And then, okay, any questions or comments? I thought I saw. No? Okay. And thirdly, and these go together, obviously, slow to anger. <coughs> slow to anger. God, God could have hurled his anger at Israel. But he didn't. Oh, he eventually does, but slow, patient. There's another word that's in the Bible, long-suffering. And then abounding in steadfast love. Now, I wrote this on the back side of the sheet last week. And every one of you in this room wrote it down, and every one of you in this room promised you would learn how to pronounce it. Do you remember what it was? Chesed. It's kind of guttural. Chesed. H-E-S-E-D. Honestly, it is, uh, guys, it is one of the most important terms in the Old Testament. Um, there was a doctoral dissertation that then became a, a, a book just on that one word. And, I mean, it's, it, this, this guy did an incredible study of this, this term. And it really is one of the most important terms in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, because there's no 
corresponding word in the New Testament that quite captures this. Like chesed. It, it, the full-fledged meaning of it, it's really hard. You cannot get one word that fits it. So they translate it into two words, steadfast love. Sometimes you will see it as loving kindness. is sometimes translated that way. But it means the loyal covenant love of God. His loyal covenant love. So chesed is related to the covenant. Chesed is related to the to the Abrahamic covenant, a loyal covenant love that God has for his people. And it's, it's that covenant. It's an unconditional unilateral covenant. I, almighty God, the creator and sovereign ruler of this universe, have chosen Abraham and your descendants. You are my people. And through you, I'm going to do my redemptive work. I love you. I'm loyal to you, even when you're not loyal to me. And I will accomplish my purposes through you. That's what's involved in that. I mean, it's an incredibly important word. And so when they wrote this in this, you know, Renewal of the Covenant document, they are, they are focusing in, and I just love that, abounding in. That's a, that's a superlative abounding in loyal covenant love. Do they have evidence of that? See the Old Testament. <laughs> See the Old Testament. There's the evidence for it. I love in the book of, in the book of Hosea, which is a minor prophet, which is largely written to the northern kingdom, but God says, this is an amazing sentence. It always struck me whenever I read it. Oh, Ephraim, that's always a reference to the northern kingdom. Oh, Ephraim, how I love you. How can I give you up? This is the northern kingdom. They didn't have one good king. They're early. They're going into idolatry. And God says, Oh, Ephraim, how I love you. How can I give you up? That's chesed. Covenant, loyal love of God. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) Finally getting with the program. And then they conclude and did not forsake them. The reason God did not forsake them is the previous four. Ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in chesed. He did not forsake them. Did he send them into exile? Yes. Did he allow them to be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 586? Yes. Did he allow Jerusalem to be destroyed? Yes. Did he allow the temple to be burned? Yes. Did he allow the high priest to be captured? Yes. Did he allow hundreds of thousands of them to be killed? Yes. But as a nation, he did not forsake them. Now he's brought them back. Now he's reinstituted everything. And so for you and me, you know, Jesus, I love those, I'm sure you know too, those words Jesus said before he went back to the Father, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. And so that promise that Jesus makes is comparable and parallel to this. He will not forsake us. So now you have five things for your list. We talked about a definition. Questions? Yes, Jim. Gotta be one of the most egregious things you can do to God is to forsake him and begin to worship something else. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to graduate soon. 
Do I think it is? But this has got to be one of the most offensive, hurtful, Absolutely. disrespectful things that a person could do. And Absolutely. Even at that extreme, that's right. And I, I mean, I agree with you. When you just think about it, humanly speaking, I could never do that. Of course, I'm not God at all, but you couldn't either. To think of that, what? that's why uh, Packer, Packer, in a little book called Knowing God, he has a chapter just, just called God, the, or I think it's called The Jealous God. And he just examines God as jealous. Now, when you and I think of jealous, it's kind of a sin, and it's it's not really a good. But in terms of God being jealous, He is the one and only true God. And in the words of Jeremiah, when you go whoring after other gods, that really hurts Him. And in um, Philip Yancey one time wrote a, a little article on the Book of Jeremiah, and he called God based on Jeremiah, God, the jilted lover. I really like that. Because he still loves, but he's been jilted as he's watched his people go after other gods, other idols. And Jim's absolutely correct. That has to be the most hurtful thing for God, to watch his people do that. After all he did for them, and I mean, everything he had, he had remained loyal to the covenant. And they're going after Molech and Chemosh and the Baals. And the Asher and all those gods and goddesses all around Israel. Stunning. But God does not give them up. They remain his people. And that is true today, in 2020. I am really looking forward to reading your papers. These are going to be really good. You're getting the list. All right, I'm ready to move on. Anything else? Well, when would we get these papers back after we turned them in? I return papers within a week. It's <laughs> a good answer. <laughs> Verse 18, let's move on. Even when they had made, and this is what Jim was referring to, for a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. Remember, they were doing that at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses was up getting the law and all that down here. Incredible. Incredible. And Aaron constructs this god, you know, gold, the, 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 it's an Egyptian god, it's what it really is, Anubis. And says, here's the god who brought her out of Egypt. And they, <laughs> what? <laughs> that thing didn't do the miracles of the ten plagues. That thing didn't part the Red Sea. But some of them bowed down. It's unbelievable. What does the Bible say? Yet in your great mercies you did not forsake them. As a matter of fact, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them by the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. That's referring to Isaiah 63, verse 11. Now there again you see one of those examples of the inspiration of God's word even in the Old Testament. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for the thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. That's detailed in Deuteronomy 8. So you have the Exodus. You have the giving of the law. You have the wilderness wanderings. And in the middle of those reviews, you have these constant focus points 
on the, on the character of God. Verse 22 gives focus to the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. And um, I don't know if I'm going to read all that because it just, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and a lot of them every corner. So they took possession of the land. And then it just reviews a number of the very specifics. Look at verse 25. And they captured fortified cities. What does fortified city mean? What does that mean? Yeah, with walls around it. These are fortified cities. All cities in the ancient world were fortified. So they captured fortified cities, rich land, took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns that are already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Another character trait of God. He's good. Always? Always. Always. But sometimes we have to let him define what good means from the vantage point of eternity. Because sometimes in a space-time point, we don't see that as good. Okay, you don't want to talk about that, so I'm going to go on. Verse 28. Or 26, I mean. Nevertheless, this is just incredible. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets. Now, they're really doing sweeping summaries of their history, but they're in the, you know, the period of the judges and headed into the monarchy, and what are they doing to the prophets? Prophets are those who are declaring the word of God, reminding them of who God is and what he's declared. And what do they respond? They kill him. Who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the enemy, their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of the enemies, the judges. Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, Deborah, Barak, all those heroes in the book of Judges. Verse 28, but after that, the rest, they did evil again before you, abandoned them in the hand of, the, of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. That's the cycle in the book of Judges. It just goes around and around and around. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. They acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Whence if a person does, he shall live by them. And they turned to a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, many years you you bore with them. And that many years is hundreds of years. <laughs> and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. There again, inspiration. The inspiration of the word of God is evident even in the Old Testament. Here's an example. You, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. What's that referring to? The exile. All that has happened to them. Verse 31. Nevertheless, 
In your great mercies, that's the fourth time we've seen that phrase, you did not make an end to them, annihilate them, wipe them out, or forsake them. Why? Because you are a gracious and merciful God. Amen. We're almost at the end of this part of the renewal of the covenant document, which they're all going to sign. But we still have to finish this quite wonderful last section. Never, now therefore, our God, in verse 32, notice this. Now therefore, our God, and I put, it's appositional here, I put in my Bible, right after God, a little equal sign. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant. What covenant? Well, yeah, the unilateral unconditional covenant, always known as the Abrahamic covenant. You keep covenant. And there's our word again. And chesed, loyal covenant love. You make a promise, you keep it. Trust in his promises. Rest in his character. If you would summarize this chapter in that, that would capture it. I, I like to use that in a lot of context. But that's really trust in his promises. His Abrahamic covenant promise is unilateral, unconditional, and rest in his character. Merciful, gracious, chesed, all of those. So I, I just love that. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Don't you want to worship a God like that? Amen. Don't you want to love a God like that? Don't you want to be devoted to a God like that? Don't you want to lovingly walk with a God like that? That was not rhetorical. I was hoping to say yes, but I know it's there. So we'll just go on. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So it's incredible. What they're doing in this is they're, they're going from 722 B.C., which is when the northern kingdom collapsed, when the kings of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. At 722 B.C., until this day, where are we? Well, you know, we're, they're back from the exile. We're in the 440s, 440 B.C. So in that sentence, they've just summarized hundreds of years of their history. You have been great, mighty, awesome, keep covenant, steadfast love, despite what we've done. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Juxtaposition. The two seeming only God can bring that together through covenant. Our kings, our priests, our, our, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your, there's that phrase again, your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, so what's the result? Behold, we are slaves to this day. As they're writing this document, slaves, what does that mean? Well, they're not in bondage. 
But under whose authority are they? No, this is a human reference here. Yeah, under Persia. They're under the Persian Empire. They're not free. They don't, they're not ruling their own land and king. They don't have a Davidic king over them. They're slaves. They're part of the Persian Empire. And so that's what they're saying. In spite of all this, and even today, we're slaves. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we're slaves. We're back in the land. But we're not free. We are under the Persian Empire, and they will be. And this is really important because they're reaffirming the character of God, they're reaffirming their covenant commitment to God, but they're understanding. Now, listen, this is a very important sentence. Part of God's discipline remains. They are not ruling in their land under the Davidic monarchy the promise God made. So this reality looks forward to a day when they are in their land and being ruled by a Davidic king. Who is that? It's Christ, Jesus. Did I lose you in that last sentence? Yes. Oh, Daniel, I'm sorry. He was pointing. I don't see a hand. Yes. I'm, I'm a little bit curious about the North, North, North Kingdom, North part of Kingdom. Um, so after the Assyrians, it, it's, it sounds like God doesn't see a division of the kingdom. He's thinking Israel, and they disobey, and that's why I send them into exile. But that's not 100% true because by this time, in the Maya and, and Ezra, a lot of the people are from the south, from Judah, that came back from the exile. Almost exclusively they are. That's so they're, they're saying, it's not because of our own sin, but it's part of the, their sin too that we're paying the consequences of. I'm not sure, uh, I, I'm not sure that's exactly the right way to parse this. I, I think what they're saying there, starting with uh, the middle of verse 32, is there's this consistency of their disobedience, idolatry, and you, God, responding to that with discipline, it started with the Syrian conquest, and it continues. So from that vantage point, there's that consistency of disobedience to God and going into idolatry, and both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom did that. And that's the only thing that he said. There is a difference between the two, but in terms of the theme of this, which is idolatry and willful disobedience, they both did that. And then, what's, what's the situation with the tribes of the north at this point? Because the Assyrians came, and then they mixed the races, and so how do, how do they know which, which people are fully uh, well, <laughs> from the north? In a sense, only God knows that, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, this is absolutely wrong to say this. Sometimes you'll hear people say the ten lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost. Uh, the Bible tells us when the Assyrians conquered them in 722 B.C., it tells us even geographically where they located some of them. I mean, specifically in the ancient world. We know where those are. And they remained there, and a lot of them maintained the distinctive, unique Jewish character. Uh, some did come back to the northern land. They really did. But 
for the most part, the diaspora, the spreading out of the Jews throughout the world, continued throughout the rest of history. And it isn't just the two tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. It's all the 10, 12 tribes. They're spread throughout the world. And only God knows, you know, because today a, a Jew in, excuse me, 2020, unless their last name is Cohen, which is kind of a, they're, they're in the Levitical line. For the most part, they don't know what tribe they're of, but God does. And God will reconstitute them back into their land and will restore, and this talks about in Ezekiel 40 through 48, will even restore the land grants to each one of the 12 tribes. He's fulfilling that covenantal promise to Abraham, finally and completely in the kingdom of his son. So um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's, did I help? Yeah. Okay. Nobody else has any easy questions like that, do they? Yes, John. I'm looking at verse 32, uh, where our God, mighty and awesome, yes. yes. and then he goes on to say, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. And after that, then it tells why they're having all this hardship and everything like that. But I, what, what does that mean there? Don't, don't let this seem trifling in your eyes. Is well, that, is, he, is he leading up the fact that because of all the distress they're in, that they're going to this covenant? Uh, yes, because then in verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You've dealt fair faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. In other words, God, what you did to us in sending us into exile and disciplining us, um, I know you're not trifling about that, God. That's not a hardship to you because you acted righteously. You acted faithfully. You did what was right. And now they're saying, it took us a long time to learn that, but we've learned that. And you know, listen, this is really important too. Again, there's a little bunny trail. This is really important. You know what the exile accomplished? Among many things, it cured the Jewish people of idolatry. They never, ever, ever struggle with that again. As a matter of fact, we have lots of records of this, and it's even among the post-exilic prophets, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. They keep saying to the people, do not, do not trifle and mess with idols, or God will send us back into exile. And then during that 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, You you hear the Hasidim, who become the Pharisees, saying to the people, don't go into idolatry. We are people of the book. And they begin to focus and teach and memorize and with meticulous conformity follow the law. But tragically, by the time of Jesus, that has turned into a kind of a legalism, which is what the Pharisees were doing. So that penchant for idolatry, you never see that again among the Jewish people. God cured them of that. It was hard, it was difficult, but he cured them of that penchant for idolatry. They never struggled with that again. Fred? I was going back to John's comments on, on verse 32 and the, the statement, let not all the hardships seem little to you. That's more like Yeah, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. Can I finish this chapter? Would that, would that be all right? <laughs> yes, 
don't know why I say it that way, but verse 36. With slaves this day in the land you gave, verse 37, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. Who is getting the rich yield of the land, of the land through taxation? The king of Persia. They roll over our bodies, over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And that's the end. That's the end of this. So what are they acknowledging? Well, we sinned, and we deserved our punishment, and we're sorry, but we're still suffering. Yes, yes. That's good. That's a good summary, Woody. I mean, it's really a good summary. You are faithful. You are just in what you've done. We are sorry for what we've done, but we're still suffering. So God is continuing that hand of discipline. When will they? When will they be free of foreign rule? May fourteenth, nineteen forty-eight. Up to that time, because when the Persian Empire is overthrown by the Greeks, they're then ruled by the Greeks. And then when the when Alexander the Great died, they're ruled by the two generals of. And then in AD um, thirty-nine, or AD sixty, excuse me, they're ruled by Rome. And then when the Roman Empire collapses in the West, they're ruled by the Byzantines, Eastern Empire. And in 1453, when the Eastern Empire collapsed, they're ruled by the Ottoman Turks. And they'll be ruled by the Ottoman Turks until 1919. Then they'll be replaced, the Ottoman Turks will be replaced by the British Empire. And then the British Empire will rule them until 1947, when the United Nations declares a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. And then David Ben-Gurion, in May 14, 1948, will announce the establishment of the nation-state of Israel, a homeland for the Jewish people. Now they're ruling themselves. We still have people going there. We do. We do. In 2008, we crossed a very significant threshold in human history. I should say in modern human history. There are more Jews in Israel today than any other place on planet Earth. The second largest concentration of Jews still is the United States because the United States does not have a history of persecuting the Jewish people. The largest concentration, the third largest concentration was in Russia. But when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, one and a half million Jews left Russia and parts of Central Europe and flooded into Israel. That was, the biggest, that was the biggest challenge to modern Israel. How do we absorb a million and a half people? And they're still struggling with some of that. They're still struggling with absorbing that many people. But it's, I mean, it's much better now. They, they've done a pretty good job of that. But this regathering of the Jewish people to the homeland is one of the most amazing things of the modern period of history. It really is quite astonishing. But if you want to know why that's occurring, read Ezekiel 36 and 37. It tells you why that's occurring. But you all know that. Right? Right. Yes. I want to read, I have one minute and 42 seconds. I want to read verse 38. Because of all this, see the preceding 37 verses, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And that word that ESV translates it, firm, firm covenant, has a very rare Hebrew word in the Old Testament. 
It seems to emphasize faithfulness, a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of obedience. All of those things are involved. If it says sealed documents, what does that mean? Yeah, the signet ring. And you're going to read in verse in chapter 10, in, on chapter 10, look at the first phrase. On the seals are the names. So what's sealed? On this document, which we've just been reading and studying, they're now going to seal. It's Nehemiah, Zedekiah, list. then look, at the end of verse 8, these are the priests. All the priests affix their seals. And the Levites, there are 17 of them. They affix their seals. Verse 14, the chiefs of the people. These are the heads of the families, the heads of the clans. You have the tribe, then you have the clans and families. So you have these amazing affirmation by a seal, putting their seal and pressing it in. This is how serious we are about this, O oh God. Not every single... There are tens of thousands of them. Not every single Jew back in the land is doing it, but their leaders are. Their leaders are all fixing their seal. They are serious about this. So next week, I want to look at the remaining parts of this. We're going to highlight that. And then a few things about chapter 11. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But then chapter 12 and 13. The greatest and loudest and most boisterous worship service in human history. I'm serious. They dedicate the wall, and miles away, they're hearing them worship to the Lord. Sort of like your worship Sunday and Sunday mornings, you know, where miles away, people are hearing you singing to the Lord, right? <laughs> it did bring three laughs, but I mean, it's one of the greatest worship services in history. So I want to spend some time on that. But we are nearing the end of our book of our study of this book. This is great stuff. Isn't this exciting? Oh, man. Remember your homework assignment. From chapter 9, you're listing the attributes of God that are focused on there. A little definition of each one. I don't expect you to do it, but it's just a fun thing. Don't hand it in, but do it for yourself. Just do it for yourself. On a piece of paper, or on your computer, or on your phone, or tell your wife about it, or something like that. I'm going to pray, and we got to get out of here. Lord, thank you. Oh, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, mainly because in the midst of all of your discipline and all of your, your dealings with the idolatry and sinfulness and rebellion of the children of Israel, we see your magnificent, awesome attributes demonstrated. Ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, uh, slow to anger, a God who keeps covenant, God who keeps chesed, loyal covenant love. You did not abandon, you did not forsake, you disciplined your people, but they remain your people. And I echo in my mind with that wonderful verse in Hosea, O Ephraim, I love you, how can I give you up? That is just absolutely impossible for us to really understand. You are a gracious God. You are an amazing God. And every one of us around this table, we just thank you and praise you for that. Lord, you owe us nothing. You offer us everything in Jesus. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. My prayer is that every man around this table is deepening their faith and commitment to you. They want to be men of faith, men of God, who represent you, who are your salt and light in this world, 
who live out their faith and are serious about their walk with you, drawing on the spirit who lives within us, being nurtured by the word of God, and trusting in your promises and resting in your character. Thank you for the God that you are. We love you, and we just commit ourselves each day to you, freshly and newly, that you can use us to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.